about six months in, uh, Colin Nesbitt came to my studio and he said, I think you need to stop this series. I said, why? He's like, you look like you're about ready to kill somebody. I'm like, that's the perfect place to be. I'm so uncomfortable making this body of work because it's outside of my normal parameters. I said, but it's also confined by the quotes themselves. I said, and the fact that I can't get the craft of the objects down, like that was really killing me. Welcome to the Studio Break Podcast. I'm your host, David Linaway. For today's 204th episode, Tim Kowalczyk comes back and talks a bit about what's been going on in his studio. He's a ceramic artist working in Minoc, Illinois. His work mostly focuses on Trump Loy and recreating garbage, in his words. Again, various sculpture and tableware forms, so we'll talk all about that coming up. If you're checking out Studio Break for the first time, we are a podcast and blog site. We feature a variety of different artists. They come on and share their work and their processes in these lengthy discussions. Again, each of our posts have images of their artwork and links to their website so you can check out more information. You can listen right there with the default player or just click that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast that way. A quick reminder that our 2018 Pro Competition is coming to a close very shortly, November 30th. If you'd like to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break, please apply. Again, our juror this year is Brian Frink. He is the head of the art department at Minnesota State University in Mankato. He also runs the Raka Gallery, and he is going to be selecting three artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break, as well as one artist for a solo exhibition at Raka Gallery. If you want to apply and know anybody that would apply please share this and of course it's very easy just go to studiobreak.com look on the left sidebar you'll see the competition page either submit images in an artist statement or just a website so it's quite quite simple once again open to all visual artists closing november 30th if you want to follow studio break please be sure and like our facebook page you can find us on twitter at studio break and of course on instagram at studio underscore break and with those announcements out of the way here is our interview with tim kowalczyk Stay tuned. Welcome to Studio Break, Tim Kowalczyk. How are you this morning? I'm doing just fine, Dave. How are you doing? Excellent, excellent. It's another fun uh, revisiting. You know, it's been six years since we talked, you know, officially, I guess, just talking about your work. I know that we had you on, I believe it's episode 102 as part of a group show. So that was kind of interesting, but we can kind of uh, get caught up with all of your goings on as we've been doing unofficially thus far. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, again, we've just been talking, too, about how quickly things change in life. So I guess kind of thinking about it, and not to bore everybody else again, you could always go back to listen to episode 50 with all sorts of bad recording issues and stuff. <laughs> you know, again, maybe you could just kind of give us a little bit of your background. Um, we can talk a little bit about some of the older work and then, of course, what's what's going on new and let it flow. So, Ba-da-ba-ba. sorry, we'll cut that out. <laughs> no, leave that in. <laughs> that sounds <That's> awful. <laughs> Uh, okay, so educational background. I went to Juliet Junior College. I ended up getting my associates later, but that's a longer story. And then I transferred down to Southern Illinois Carbondale, uh, got my BFA in art education and ceramics, took a year off. And then I went to Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois to get my master's in ceramics. And then in 2012, I started teaching uh, at a junior college in East Peoria, and then I stopped teaching there in December of 2017 and became a full-time studio maker. I kind of think about your work. There's such a realism to it, and I'm curious then, because I'm sure that there's a lot of things related to kind of like drawing in terms of like thinking about something looking realistic, and maybe I'm using the term drawing, and you might be using like sculpture or you know, something to kind of make something look realistic. But I'm just kind of curious then, you know, is that where you started or were you kind of like somebody that was kind of making a lot of things by hand when you were, you know, younger? I think it was always doing the things by hands. My parents always liked to throw it in my face that I took everything apart. And I never put anything back together. Mm-hmm. 
and my dad was a kind of a jack of all trades guy. He built a lot of the furniture in our house and my mom was a flat glass artist. So she was dealing with like lead cane and cutting glass and things like that. My brother was the 2D guy and I just kind of gravitated. I couldn't beat him in the two dimensional stuff. So I just decided I'd do the three dimensional stuff. And originally it was for sculpture reasons and it, it, it stayed there, but it just dedicated to ceramics as the medium. I look at your work and I just think like there's such a flexibility to the medium, you know? So like when we think about something like sculpture, I mean, I don't know, buying hardwood costs a lot of money. If your goal is to kind of make something that kind of plays around with the expectations of a viewer or, you know, tricks them into seeing something that, you know, is kind of deceiving. I mean, why not just uh, manipulate it, you know, as opposed to <laughs> buying a $200 piece of hardwood and, you know, having all these tools to kind of sculpt it in a, in a way that's totally different from making it out of ceramics. Yeah. Well, and I think too, like, I, I didn't know how to put it into words at first. And I think it was through meeting with, with a, one of your past guests, Bill Conger, like he kind of explained it is you had to make a, he kept going back and forth between the triangle and the umbrella is like, figure out what's at the top of that and everything should fall under it. And he's like, what's most important to you is that the clay or the trompe l'oeil. And I think they kind of flip flop back and forth, mm -hmm. but those are always the two things at the top of my triangle or on the top of my umbrella. And then everything has to fall under that. And it, it was just about learning the materials and learning how to get the materials to do what I wanted them to by what we were talking about before we started this, but experimentation with the materials. Like a lot of the times people will be like, Oh, how can you do that with the clay? It's going to blow up in the kiln. And I'm like, I tested it a lot. <laughs> like, and that's things that I find like when I do workshops, people are not willing to do. I'm like, Oh, here are the things I use to make this. And immediately they're like, what are the ratios? How long do you mix it? Like they go into a very in-depth, like exactly step-by-step -step tutorial. Of, like, how do you get that finish? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, Oh, you should really try it on your own. Because even with like my clay body color, trying to get it to look that realistic, I got a recipe from Jim Schiedinger, who's down in uh, Millican University, who worked with Rauschenberg for the Tampa clay pieces. He gave me a recipe that is no longer mined, and then I had to use substitutes. And I spent two and a half months just developing the color. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, I found nine recipes versus one. Right, right. So I, I think that's an important lesson when we talk about experimentation and learning how to get to a certain point in your career. It's like, it's not always a this way linear path that might, you know, branch off quite a bit. Yeah, being adaptable, being able to be able to change. Again, I was just kind of musing, you know, how sometimes that can be a big hindrance for an artist. I'm curious then to kind of think about maybe some of the, the work that you were making kind of shortly after graduate school in terms of the more kind of sculptural pieces. And, you know, again, I, I remember when we talked previously, specifically those pieces that were, you know, like balled up pieces of paper, you know, cardboard boxes, uh, you know, packaging kind of materials. I mean, is, is are those kind of pieces like ones where you had kind of started thinking about them you know, sculpturally that kind of, I don't know, maybe you kind of saw then as a way to kind of move kind of more into your kind of tableware kind of stuff. I think the tableware came as not an afterthought, like it was there just because of the medium, like, uh, because when I started ceramics, it took a, a really good graduate assistant to kind of, you know, hit me to the fact that like, you know, you can make sculpture with this too. And like, I was like, Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, like, everybody just thinks of them as pots, like, clay equals pots, like, I drink from a coffee cup. So, going through and making those sculptural pieces is where, you know, like, where it really lies, but turning to the functional wear and going back to this conversation of, like, what wordage we use, I think of making the sculpture wear as mini sculptures, like the, the table wear, mm -hmm. as mini sculptures, and I always call them my sketches, because it helps me work on composition. It helps me work on craft of making the object. Those things help me perfect my sculptures. It's interesting because, you know, I'll, I'll talk to artists that don't have those kind of resources or they don't have these things that kind of enforce other bodies of work from that kind of like making standpoint, you know, like they're going to make sketches or, 
something like that that kind of serves something. It seems like these bodies of work then kind of inform each other. I don't know if that, does it make sense what I'm saying? Yeah, no, yeah. And I've always been a horrible sketcher. Mm-hmm. Like I I do better than most. Granted, like if you, you know, compare me to my wife or something, like I'm clearly I've been to art school, like I know how to do the stuff. But when it comes down to it, like one, I'm making realistic work, so why am I redrawing a fire extinguisher? Mm-hmm. It's just going to look how it's going to look and the clay and the underglaze is going to do its own little thing and I'm going to have to adapt at every stage. But the drawing process is literally just done in these little experimentations, these, you know, little avenues, uh, just like the Polaroids kind of like the Polaroids were a way for me to make test tiles, essentially, of different glazes that I kind of knew what they were going to do. And so I got to be able to test glazes. I got to be able to test decals. I had this whole avenue of like, quote unquote, test tiles that were actual pieces of work. And it's interesting with those too, because, you know, like we've been talking about experimentation already, but I would imagine then that kind of provides like, again, like a big resource in terms of thinking about how you might be able to manipulate things that you want to make or eliminate even things that you know that you don't want to make. Well, yeah. And like... You know, just like you, you know, you choose the right color of paint or something like that. Like I had to figure out the right clay body combination. I had to figure out the right method of building. Like, so I went through several different processes just to figure out how to make a Polaroid, how I wanted it to look, mm-hmm. let alone the glaze combos that go, you know, glaze combinations that go on top of the the picture area. Like, you know, and some are more successful than others, and I know that. And you know, you know, it's just that process of trying, 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 and like having a desired effect to happen, and trying to achieve that. And there's, I always tell people like they're like, oh, you sell, you sell everything. Like I did a wood firing this April, mm-hmm. and I sold it all. And I guess it's a big tradition to keep what's called the legacy piece. Mm-hmm. So you're supposed to keep one from each firing and I sold it all. And people are like, why'd you sell it all? You're supposed to keep a piece. I'm like, that way I'm always chasing. Like I end up talking about art, like drugs. Like <laughs> I'm trying to chase the dragon. Like I'm always trying to get to that, like that perfect piece that came from that firing mm-hmm. again in the next time. Like, so I'm like, Oh, that was the good one. Okay. So let's try to make it more like that. And then I find different ways to make that. It's weird what people kind of hold on to because I always look at it, sadly, and maybe this is too fatalistic that, you know, you're not going to hold on to it forever. You know, it's going to be out of your reach at some point. So, you know, might as well sell it if you can, um, which is, again, kind of like what hopefully most artists are wanting to do is just to be able to spend their time making work, you know? Well, yeah. And like I do a lot of trying to sell work so I can get other people's work, like make art to get other people's work. My basement is essentially my 2D gallery, and then I have a whole cup shelf upstairs of other potters and things like that. But it's like I'd still be making work either way, but I feel like if you're just going to make work and store it in the basement, what's what's the point? Mm-hmm. Like it's just an object then that collects dust. I much prefer someone else have that object and appreciate it and have it in their house than me being like, you know, every two weeks somebody comes over and be like look at this thing i have sitting down in the basement isn't it amazing like that's kind of not the point of making stuff i want other people to see it and you know i especially enjoy feedback from other people absolutely absolutely um well so again we were just talking a little bit about the the polaroids as a you know way of kind of experimenting and uh playing around with you know, getting essentially the formula right. Again, I feel like such a non-ceramicist when I talk to you. So <laughs> so to kind of think about it, like as we kind of progress forward, you know, I brought up uh, some of those more sculptural pieces. Again, they kind of really feel like, you know, there's a lot of mundane kind of objects almost that you kind of would imagine kind of like lying around the studio. Mm-hmm. Are, are those kind of the things that you're kind of drawn to in terms of like the banal, the, I don't know, like the paintbrush that you forgot or you know, whatever, just kind of debris that you might find. And again, obviously we're talking specifically about those those pieces that you were making, you know, maybe around the the time of our last uh, discussion all those years ago. Sure. And I might have used some of those same words. And I I came to the realization probably the beginning of last year is that I make garbage. (laughs) 
that that's as simply as I can ever put it. And it's, you know, people kind of recoil from that word and react very aggressively to that word garbage. But um, I really do. Like when I go to think about different things, it's always the stuff that people are going to throw away. Like I go to set up shows and I always like to show up early to go set up shows because usually someone's working in the gallery and they have, you know, a random piece of cardboard that they're using as a paint palette or a random, you know, brush that's been around the gallery forever. And those things, you know, like the paint brushes are very influenced by going around and seeing those objects. And especially when you talk about like the show I had at Black Book Gallery last October, I think we can talk about that. And like, it's kind of a street art based gallery. And I was like, man, I, I've never done graffiti ever in my life. I appreciate it. Like I know the art form, but I don't think I could do it. And I was like, how do I approach this and talk about this content? Because I find it very interesting. And immediately it was like, I started talking to a couple of my friends that had done it and they kind of led me to these, you know, other podcasts that talk about graffiti work. And I stumbled on this one that was talking about trying to be a green graffiti artist, because what we don't think about is since it is illegal is they'll pitch the cans and they'll pitch the tools because they don't want to be caught with them. Mm -hmm. So then I started to dive into that and it's like, there's a, a large amount of garbage that is left behind when doing that. And I was like, there's my in, like it falls in my content of making garbage, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and all this stuff. And then like, all of a sudden I'm like, Oh, I have endless amounts of stuff I can make now. I'm like, it's easy. You find the object they use to make the thing. And then you go back and you figure out what it looks like when it's all trashed. And it fits under the umbrella too. Yeah, it fits in the umbrella, right? Because it goes clay or trompe l'oeil, you know, depending on my mood. And then garbage is the big third one, right? And then once I have those three things on the umbrella, everything else is gold. Like, I'm like, okay, I can do this and I can do this. And uh, it's limiting in ways because there are certain things that I'm like, oh, man, really wish I could make that. But I can't make it with clay. So, but that's so high up there as far as my, I want to call it attributes, but my personal criteria, I guess. Mm -hmm. I don't stop anybody else or be like, oh, you didn't make that on clay. Like, I appreciate mixed media sculpture and paintings and things like that, but I, I just have that criteria in place. The body of work that we have, ugh. You're, pro you're probably right in that when you start obsessing, it's probably because I spend far too much time on my own and have listened to myself for hours and hours and hours that I'm so wrapped up in my head. Um, so to think about some of the, the pieces, um, you know, again, from, you know, the series that you're making, you know, essentially right after graduate school, you know, they're kind of exploring all these garbage materials. Again, there's a number of pieces um, that are kind of more wall-based, um, you know, records and packaging foam and other kind of Trump Loy things. You know, how could we kind of differentiate that between, you know, this other body of sculptural work that came after? I believe the body is called How Great I Am. You know, there's a lot of play going on in terms of um, the materials, um, and they're obviously uh, recognizable in a different way. They're kind of debris still, but they're, again, really playful, you know, like especially like I love this uh, murder to rock piece, you know, where you've got like this realistic looking knife coming out of a realistic looking rock and, you know, various other things. So maybe talk a little bit about that body and, and what, what that was about. Well, so, you know, we all as artists, like we're in the studio and especially, and, you know, I say especially me, but like everybody feels like that. Like we're very isolated when we're in the studio and I live in a small town of like 1800 people. I don't even have a stoplight. That's how small we are. So clearly my art community is non-existent here in town. And I was just really stuck making the same things. Like that was, you know, 2012 would have been like right when I started mug production mm -hmm. or repetition rather. Um, and then 
I was kind of stuck and I'm like, oh, I'm making cardboard again. Like, not that it's a bad thing, but, you know, as everybody wants, they want to kind of expand. And I said, okay. And I was teaching at the time and I, I consume a massive amount of content and I heard Ali's speech running in the background of some clip commercial thing. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. Like, because just the idea of murdered a rock, hospitalized a brick, like all those things instantly brought images to my head. And so I was like, oh, I'll try this really easy exercise and I'll take his speech. And I broke it down into 10 lines uh, for 10 different sculptures. And I said, okay, I'm going to spend like maybe a month working on this. You know, just to have that exercise, those sketches that I talk about, you know, uh, in the studio. And about about six months in, uh, Colin Nesbitt came to my studio and he said, I think you need to stop this series. I said, why? He's like, you look like you're about ready to kill somebody. <laughs> I'm like, that's the perfect place to be. I'm so uncomfortable making this body of work because it's outside of my normal parameters. I said, but it's also confined by the quotes themselves. I said, and the fact that I can't get the craft of the objects down, like that was really killing me. Like I'd already had some, some amount of success out of grad school. And I was like, I, I can do this. I just need to find the right ways to do it. So Long story short, 18 months later, I finally finished this small project. <laughs> Each sculpture that everybody ended up seeing, like, that's probably at least the third version, if not the fifth version of, of that particular sculpture. You know, changing the angle on the knife and the rock, changing, you know, the look of the rock. I accidentally murdered a stone instead of a rock. <laughs> like little things that meant a lot to me and just kind of trying to figure out the nuances of like what it meant and how the composition came together. Sure. Sure. Well, and obviously too, there's a lot of different things going on in terms of the materials that you're trying to replicate. You know, like one of the more impressive ones to me is the way that you, the handcuffed lighting piece mm -hmm. um, again, cause you've got these, light bulbs that look all reflective and they really lead you to believe that they're light bulbs and that there's all these kind of various materials. There's, you know, like this wonderful kind of recreation of like rust and is a lot of it then these pieces that you're ditching out on or like kind of adjusting, are they, you know, just not working out in terms of the experimentation and formula to kind of get right. And then it's just a matter of, you know, again, just having the perseverance to kind of see it through. Yeah, it you know, it's it's like going to a drawing class without an eraser, right? <laughs> like that that is like almost the perfect analogy for this. Is like when I make an object, like I get to a certain point and I don't have an eraser. So whether it be fired or it's in the greenware stage where I can reclaim it, I have to restart the thing all over again. I have to rip off the piece of paper. I have to start with a new fresh piece of paper. I have to rebuild the object. And then, okay, this is where I screwed it up last time. Like, okay, now I can fix this part. And, oh, okay, but I forgot to compensate. Like, that series taught me a lot about, like, how clay shrinks because I was using multiple clay bodies in one piece. Like, the lightning piece you're talking about has three different clay bodies in it. So they're all shrinking at different rates in the kiln. You know, they all have different ways. They accept glaze and washes and things like that. They all build exceptionally different. Like, so I'm trying to work with all these different variables all in one piece just to get them to work how I want them to work. So it's a lot of, a lot of drawing, you know, and not erasing, but just starting over. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like then there's a lot of them that aren't going to work out just because of all the variables. Yeah, and there were. there. I think I made like five sets of handcuffs. I don't always feel that smart uh, <laughs> when I go through things like this. And because it took me five times to figure out, like, I can just take the handcuffs and, you know, scale them up on the photocopy machine 
and then you know do my do my ceramicy thing and like test the shrinkage and figure out how much it shrinks and then I was able to kind of compensate for that. So a piece like that, then it, there's three different essentially types of clay that are all fired at the same time. Uh, yeah, the handcuffs are a, what's called a dark stoneware, and then the the sign itself, the lightning bolt, is made out of a Ishin clay body. It's a high red iron oxide clay body, and then the light bulbs are slip cast porcelain. And so after that comes out of the the kiln, I, like how is it manipulated after that? Again, um, I feel very self conscious as a, a terrible ceramicist. You know, I had that experience of the the one lone semester. <laughs> you know, oh no, don't don't feel bad. Like, <laughs> you could talk painting all day, and you'd probably lose me after like just talking about like I feel like very under underrated when people start <laughs> talking about different kinds of breads. I'm like, uh huh. I'm like, I don't know that. Right. As far as that goes, like the only thing that was really done differently is like because of the shrinkage and because of the the different kinds of glazes I had to use, I had to epoxy the light bulbs in mm -hmm. just because I had to take other things up higher and it wouldn't have accepted glaze and things like that. But the light bulb and the handcuffs are all fired at the same temperature. So like they had to shrink together and move in the kiln together. And then, of course, they come out and, like, you had to adjust the light bulbs. And I, I have a wonderful art critic in the house. Uh, my wife mm -hmm. turns around and looks at it and is like, why are all the light bulbs full? I'm like, what are you talking about? She's like, shouldn't some of them be broken? I'm like, crap. And she's <laughs> like, no, what what I do? And I'm like, no, you're right. Like, I had to go remake more light bulbs. And, like, luckily it wasn't, you know, finished at that point. So, you know, I had to adjust just off, based off of like some things because I'm too focused on getting getting the project done. But you know, so like another piece, for example, like made me sick, which you know kind of has that really reflective looking bottle and mm -hmm. you know like a thermometer coming out of that. So those are all pieces that are fired in terms of the way that they're finished and glazed, or are any like essentially painted um, after the fact? No, all my all my work goes through the kiln. So that's also kind of like I come from a blue collar household and it was always like do the work to get it done. Like we did a lot of our own remodeling. We worked on our own cars like we did a lot of that. And I think that carries over my work ethic carries over into my art as well is that like if I'm going to do it, I should really do it right. And my concept of doing it right, quote unquote, is that everything has to go through the kiln. So, like, not only do I have to know my materials, I have to know different methods of building, slip casting versus hand building. I have to know the different types of clay bodies. I have to know how to use underglazes. I have to know how to use glazes. And I have to know how to apply them differently to get different effects, right? And to equate that to something like painting, it's like using different brushes. I would assume like this brush does this effect and this brush helps me do this effect. It's the same way in glaze application. Like what you can't see, I think in that, that bottle piece is that was the beginning of my underglaze transfers. And I was trying to figure out how to make text and make the label appear, which started me down the road of like putting fragile labels on things and stuff like that. So it's very informative. Perhaps an interesting segue then into <laughs> some of the more current work where, again, that seems to be utilized quite a bit. Yeah. But what's, what's the process like then of adding text to the pieces? So it's a, it's called underglaze transfer. And I, I do it fairly different from a lot of people. The baseline is always the same, but I'm using a silk screen and I'm thickening up the underglaze and underglaze is mostly clay with colorant in it. Mm -hmm. And I get that through uh, a clay company called Amico. They're kind of like my like paint store. Like I can just go and pick a color and then I have that. I thicken those up to like a pasty type consistency. And then I screen print them that would pro in a way that would probably make screen printers or printer printmakers in general probably cringe mm -hmm. uh, because I'm once again, I'm very naive when it comes to that. I'm like, I figured out a way to do it and I'm good. But I transfer those onto paper and then like with the fragile label in particular, 
it's a red print through the screen printed in reverse and then i cut it out and then i brush on a white color on the background so you get the two tones Mm -hmm. i let it sit to dry and then i rehydrate it and apply it to the piece uh while the like the mug or the box is still wet well and so to kind of think about the way that applies to the you know a lot of the the work that you're making now then um it seems like you've kind of really uh gained a mastery in terms of exploring that um or i shouldn't say mastery again it's just willingness to experiment it sounds like from what you've been talking about in terms of trial and error um is that something that you kind of accept and I, again, we kind of talked about this already, but I mean, that's just a part of the process for you in terms of, is this going to work? I mean, is there like a big failure rate to things in, in terms of even now? Because I would imagine just with all the stuff that we've just talked about, you know, you're building up all these resources that you can then apply. Is there a sense of control in it ever? Um, I like to think there is. Now, Clay, you know, Clay, much like any other medium, will definitely show you who's boss, like it'll work great the first 99 times. And then the hundredth time you're like, I got this. And then all of a sudden it comes out and it's crap. And you're just like, Oh, okay. Through those problems. I've also learned how to add different layers to my process. Once again, going back that term of making garbage, like the transfer may not stick all the way. So like, how do I, you know, when a label doesn't come out and it doesn't say fragile all the way because different spots chip off or, different spots didn't sick, um, then I can go and I can sand things and make them look a little more worn or underglazes have a different reaction with my clay bodies and they bubble. So then all of a sudden I'm left with what would essentially be a non-usable surface. But then I was like, oh, since I have these, I'll sand them off. I'll add paint splatters. I'll add, you know, staining to make it look like the cardboard's even more weathered than it already looked. So through those quote-unquote failures, I'm able to play a little bit more with the after effects or adding extra layers and doing extra firings and understanding how that works so that I can, you know, when I run across that problem again, it's no longer a failure but a, you know, kind of like a contrived uh, result. Yeah. Uh, and again, it, it just seems interesting, the range, you know, there's, there's ones that'll kind of reuse text, but things will be in different spots or different placements or the transfer will be different. Um, especially in the most current stuff, there's, there's ones where what looks like almost like painter's tape on the side of it in terms of color mm-hmm. splashes. I mean, do you have, how many would you say you have like going then if you're going to like work on, you know, like a certain amount of, you know, these mugs, especially, at a time after I stopped teaching, it took me about 10 months to figure out a good system in my studio. So I was doing a lot of workshops and residencies and things like that. And while those pay well, like it also decreases the amount of money I was making on mugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I had to cut those back a little bit. And then Everybody I talked to was like, you need to be making more. You need to be making more. And I I had this pressure of like, oh, I'm not making enough per week, per month, like however you looked at it. And then I tried to settle it into daily goals. And I was like, how many can I make per day without killing myself? And like still doing all my responsibilities, being a dad, being a homeowner, making, you know, being a husband, doing Mm -hmm. all those things. And I'm lucky enough to have a home studio. So like I have two parts to my day. I have the work day and then I have the work night after the kids go to bed, you know, and my wife works on her stuff and I work on my stuff and we're in the same area uh, of the basement. So that's nice. But I I started at 10 cups per day and I was just barely getting them finished and I was just killing myself to do it. And then I dropped down to doing just five a day. And what that did is it really opened it up, slowed down my process. I was able to kind of find the pacing that I needed and also start to refine a lot of the things that I was looking for. I was able to like slow it down to a manageable, manageable repetitive process where I could be like, oh, now I can focus on this part a little bit more and this part a little bit more. 
and not to say that any of the work prior to that was uh, not good. It was just like little things that probably only I notice, mm-hmm. like as any artist does when they're like, oh, you you know, like you go to a show and you're like, oh, that painting is really great. And you're like, ah, but that spot right there, that's really bugs me. And people are like, I don't notice anything. Mm-hmm. I, I found trying to lower that and slow down a little bit was good, but also it opened me up to be able to do both the functional wear and to start to make sculptures. So it was just a really good balance of both in the studio. So to think about that then, I mean, is that something that ties into the more vessel forms that you've been making too? Because there's some very large kind of vessel-like pieces that look like vases or vases. I don't know. Again, I'm not a vase person, I guess. but I think, you know, there's the old adage, like, uh, what's the difference between a vase and a vase? And people are like, $10,000. Like, <laughs> I think most everybody just you know, we call them vases or we refer to them as vessels. That that whole project was started by the one of the co-owners of Mudshark Studios out in Portland, Oregon. And he called me and he's like, why don't you make things big? And I'm like, uh, I don't have the kilns to make things big? Like, I don't understand the question. He's like, what if you had the space and the time? And I'm like, uh, I guess I would do it. And then, so this started the whole conversation of what would you make if you made things big and what would the direction be? So working with him, like kind of turned into this big thing of like, if you were in the dream situation, what would you make? Like, and I was like, well, I guess I would start here. Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of referential to the medium. And then, it also challenges how I can use my work, like how I can use my, my forms. And I'd already been doing that, like making the Unomies. I called them Midwestern Unomies because I think the Midwest has this connotation to it of kind of, and people are going to take this offensively, but being kind of dumb or silly. Mm-hmm. And I meant that in the best possible ways. And I was just trying to take my garbage and make it apply to these very traditional classical forms. And this just gave me another another avenue in which to do that. So then I was able to apply them to these Greek forms, the amphoras, and I forget how to pronounce the bowl forms. But I was able to kind of put my spin on those very traditional classical ceramic forms, but make them look like garbage. Mm-hmm. So that kind of just spawned off there and it's like, what can we do with these forms? And like, you know, giving a, given a certain timeline, like we planned for about six months beforehand. I went out there in January. I worked for 18 days. I came home. They sent me the molds from Portland to my home studio. And I probably spent another month working on things in my home studio. Uh, to get them done. And then that all culminated in the beginning of November uh, in a group show called Factitious Matter that they just closed last week. You know, that kind of timeline is what I was working with and like, what can I get done in that amount of time? And now I get to sit back and reflect and be like, what was the most successful and why was it successful? Uh, so that going forward from here, if I'm going to make larger forms, I can kind of adjust and see what else I can do. Well, and to kind of think about it related to something that we were talking about, you know, way before we even started recording was Instagram. Um, is this kind of like one of those collaborations or discussions that happen through that, I guess, medium is what I would call it now. You know, it's almost like a, another medium. It's a really good correlation that you bring up because like, I wouldn't be in the position I am if it weren't for Instagram. I was pushed and pushed and pushed to start an Instagram account and I did it very reluctantly. And then I started reaching out to people I knew, like I think he was there after you were Matt Sheeman. Matt Sheeman came in my last year at Southern. And so I reached out to him because he was do he helps run this place down in Florida. And I said, hey, do you want to do a trade? I know my pots aren't that great, but I really like your stuff. And he was like, sure, I'm willing to trade with you. And I traded with him. 
and he was represented by Companion Gallery in Humboldt, Tennessee. And they saw my work on his Instagram, and they asked me if I wanted to be represented by them. And I said, sure, like, I don't know why, but sure, we'll try this and figure it out. And then the people from Portland reached out and said, hey, you know, you're accepting being represented. Would you be represented through here? And it just kind of started this ball rolling, like where they started representing me as well. And then they're like, oh, like, let's see where we can, you know, start with the mugs and see where else we can move. You know, did a little show out there with the match matchbooks and Polaroids and shooting star targets. And then it evolved into this friendship between me and the, the two co-owners of just trying to figure out logistically how to make things fit in their demographic of sales mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of coming up with the project. So that all spawns off of me having more social interactions with people and starting all that. And that's what a lot of this stuff is like. I have a lot to blame on Instagram for the reason why I can make, you know, the same amount of money making mugs and sculptures as I can adjunct teaching. Mm -hmm. Like that's all related to social media presence. What's the learning curve for that? <laughs> constant, constant learning curve. You know, you start off by making really weird posts you're like oh here's a picture of this and like i had to put a post-it note to like make a post every day because it's about frequency mm -hmm. and then you know you get used to that and then instagram decides they're going to change their algorithm it's like okay so then you have to relearn the algorithm like and i haven't switched to the business profile or anything but so i had to do my own like analog algorithms like figuring out when people are viewing my posts the most like if i post at in the morning i get you know medium hits if i post in the afternoon i don't really get anything but nighttime was kind of my area for my the people who were watching my work to kind of gravitate towards so all that happens and then you know i tried the periscope route just doing live stuff I was using it as a supplement for doing workshops because I didn't think that people would want to come out to watch me or pay me to come out to show them how to make cardboard out of clay. Mm -hmm. Like it seems like a really silly thing when it's like, Oh, what do you make? Like, especially in my little town, like when I have to explain to my, you know, 70 year old neighbors, like I make cardboard out of clay. Like <laughs> they're like, what? You know, so I kind of felt like that would be the same thing. So what I found was that there was a whole community of people that were doing these live broadcasts and that Instagram bought out Periscope or however that works. They made it so you could dual cast. And once again, I feel very isolated in the community as far as art people go. Um, so it was a way for me to reach out and be like, hey, you know, artist in California, hey, are you going to be online at this time? And then we can talk shop and do work in the studio and have this really interesting conversation for an hour that can only be viewable for 24, you know, and you get my crossover traffic, I get your crossover traffic, and then we gain more people watching our work. And then hopefully in that, then more interaction with our work in the gallery. So it was a very, I don't want to say contrived because that seems negative, but it was a very aware point of view to just be like, this is what needs to happen if I'm going to grow my social media presence. It seems like a, a tool that artists need then to kind of, you know, be functional in today's, uh, you know, economy, just because, you know, you hear about all sorts of, you know, traditional galleries and spaces closing shop and, you know, every year they come out with, you know, new statistics about how, you know, certain museum exhibitions are even kind of like narrower in terms of the artists that they represent. So being able to kind of own, 
you know, your content and to get it out there and to be responsible for it. Um, again, it just seems like you've really kind of pushed yourself and figuring out how to, how to make that work for you. Yeah. I mean, you know, once again, like me and you are of the generation, like we switched from slides to digital, we switched from non-internet to internet usage. It used to be that you had to approach galleries and apply for exhibitions like solely via the mail like there was no interactions with those people whatsoever mm-hmm. now with social media and particularly instagram like i know people in australia that i've never met that i have perfectly good conversations with via social media mm-hmm. you know they jump on my live broadcast i jump on their live broadcast like we talk back and forth and it's also like outreach it's like do you know who Brian Selkie is? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had him on the podcast. He said once, and I don't know if he'll remember this, is he showed his work to some big gallery owner. I said, why would you do that? He goes, well, they can't unsee my stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I, I was like, that's a very Brian Selkie quote, but as it's like, he had a point. Like, And social media is very much that. They can't unsee it once they see it. Like, so then you can kind of just reach out and just be like, hey, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? And those live broadcasts are one way to get that crossover platform. Like, oh, who's this guy that's, you know, broadcasting with, you know, Kevin Kowalski or this other, you know, this other guy in Milwaukee that I broadcast with uh, Andrew Linderman. Like, you get that crossover. But then also, like, whoever they're represented by or whoever's looking at their work is then looking at your work. And like, once again, to kind of, you know, get on my soapbox is like, I don't want a whole bunch of stuff sitting in my basement. I want people to enjoy that stuff. I want it to be out in the world and I want to be able to be able to make more of it because if my basement gets full of all my stuff just sitting around, then I'm going to probably end up stop making or I'm just going to throw it all out, which seems like a shame. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that outreach is the way that you kind of get in front of people to be able for them to see your work and for people to be able to get your work and put it in their houses and then their friends see it. And like, it's this whole snowball effect. Well, and so much better than, you know, robots making work and buying buying robot work from Amazon art or, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever they're going to come yeah. up with. <laughs> well, that's, you know, again, really interesting to think about. Again, it sounds like you are constantly working, always busy. So what's the best way for people to, to stay informed with where you're showing and what you're making and all the things that are going on uh, in, you know, your world? Well, I think the easiest way is to jump on Instagram, follow me at timceramics.com, Tim Ceramics on Instagram, and then go to my website. I put out a newsletter. I've been trying to very specifically only do it when there's something really major and not just be like every little sale, put something up. Mm-hmm. But if you subscribe to my newsletter and then if you're really interested, you can go to the galleries and I think... I think Black Book in particular has a newsletter that you can sign up for and they kind of tell you all the goings on and follow the galleries that I'm represented by because they they do a good job of representing me and kind of putting me out in the world. Again, it's interesting to think about how all of that social media kind of crosses over to kind of allow for more opportunities and, you know, as a, a maker, but then also to kind of communicate with other people, other artists and, you know, make those acquaintances in Australia. Yeah. All over the world. It's crazy how much social media can reach out. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, again, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been a fun conversation and uh, glad to have you back on. Uh, All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Thanks once again to Tim for joining me. Be sure to check out his website, timceramics.com. And of course, follow him on Instagram and say hello. You can find his work at Black Book Gallery. And he's also going to be having a solo exhibition in Central Illinois in Peoria at the Peoria Art Guild entitled Late Last Night that opens February 1st and runs through the 24th. So check it out if you can. 
Our last reminder that our 2018 Pro Competition is coming to a close November 30th. So if you're a visual artist out there and you want to apply, get your application in immediately. Again, our juror this year is Brian Frank. He is the head of the art department at Minnesota State University in Mankato and also runs the Rocka Gallery. He'll be selecting three artists to appear on an upcoming episode of Studio Break as well as one artist for a solo exhibition at Rocka Gallery. So if you are interested or know someone who is, please tell them about this opportunity or apply today. If you go to studiobreak.com and just look on the left tab, you will see the pro competition. Again, it's quite simple to apply, so go there, do it now. I've said my piece. If you do visit Studio Break, you notice that we have a wealth of interviews archived up on studiobreak.com. Again, each with images of the artwork as well as links to the artist's websites. You can listen right there in the default player or just hit that iTunes hyperlink and subscribe to the podcast. Of course, we are in a number of social media formats, so please be sure and like our Facebook page. You can follow us on Twitter at Studio Break and, of course, on Instagram at Studio underscore Break. Of course, before we get out of here, I do want to thank Skylar Mail, who provides the music to Studio Break. You can check out his work at SkylarMail.net. If you'd like to see some of my work, and I do have a sale going on through December with free shipping, go to DavidLinaway.com. There's multiple bodies of work paintings that range from large scale to small scale and of course be sure and check it out at davidlinaway.com if you'd like to see what i'm up to you can always add me on facebook you can of course follow me on twitter and instagram at david Linaway, so please be sure to do that say hello and once again thanks for listening hope you enjoyed today's episode we'll talk to you real soon